Hello, and welcome to Quest, a vineyard church where we experience life as friends with faith through encountering God, loving others, and making a difference in our community. If you're new, there will be information at the end of this podcast where you can plug into Quest in person or online. Now let's dive into this week's teaching. How many of you have been doing your Bible reading? Did you have fun this last week? It was a it was a really interesting week. A lot of interesting stories. Uh, these this series that we're in uh, is the last few weeks. I think it does more to establish the foundation for both understanding reality from the Bible and God's perspective, but also understanding the foundation for helping us really make sense of the rest of the Bible. So if you've missed any of the last four messages or three, this is the fourth one, if you've missed any of this series, can I encourage you to go back and listen to them because it's really going to shape how you understand the Bible and how you understand uh, Christianity because so many times we force our own um, ideas upon Christianity rather than allow Christianity to tell us what it really thinks and what the Bible really thinks. It's really important to understand things. Today we're going to deal with a Bible story that I think um, probably everybody in America at least has some familiarity with. It's Noah and the Ark. And uh, kids and parents love the story. They love the little Noah's Ark, and the kids get to put the animals inside the Ark. And there's even Noah's Ark-themed murals that hang above a baby's crib and decals for the walls. And Noah's Ark is one of the most popular ways for decorating children's classrooms and church. I mean, what's not to like? The animals went in two by two, so cute. And then God closed the door, and all their friends, parents, kids, cousins, school teachers, and all their puppies were wiped out by God drowned as they clawed the outside of the ark trying to get in. I mean, honestly, having a Noah's Ark mural above your infant's crib is a little bit like having the four horsemen of the apocalypse, the zombie-themed mural, above your kids to play with. I mean, over the holidays, one of the things we were thinking about doing, we ended up not having, not fitting it in, but we were going to go to the Creation Museum's full-size ark just south of Cincy, and uh, I think it would be really, really fascinating to see that and experience that. To, to, the story of Noah's Ark, I think, elicits many and varied questions for us. I mean, probably the first question that comes out of it for almost everybody is, how could a good, loving God do such a thing? And then there's the question, how many animals could fit in the Ark? Well, actually, experts say that estimates around 35,000. I mean, that would be really quite the zoo exhibit, right? Add a glass bottom to that boat, and you experience the aquarium experience as well. And it starts off with a Halloween-themed zombies floating by, but maybe that's too much. Maybe that's going too far. When the text says the whole earth was flooded, does it literally mean the whole earth, the whole world, or as the Bible does actually use that phrase some other places as well, could it have been a regional impact, a, a known world kind of flood? That's someone question people ask. And, and then there's the question of, you know, at least for me, having grown up working on farms, how much manure would 35,000 animals create? And how could eight people shovel it fast enough to not die of the gases in an entrapped boat? Still under, others wonder, have they really found the ark in Turkey? And if so, why hasn't it been fully ex- excavated? Why can't somebody make sure that happens? One of the most important questions, I think, is why did God allow cats in the boat since they are so independent and ornery in their disposition? I think, just leave them out, right? Sorry, all you cat lovers. 
Lots of great questions. In one sense, the story of God is giving is that humanity has another chance to be different. That's maybe one way. Maybe it's a you could call it different things. You could call it a reboot, a restart, a do-over, a, a fresh start. But the reality is, God knows, and it becomes evident in the text that it's still going to fail. Humanity is still going to fail after it. So, what's the lessons we learn from this story? What does the story tell us about God? And what does this story tell us about us and about life? So today we're going to navigate our way through making sense of this by looking at four things. We're going to look at uh, two words and two phrases that I think help describe and draw out the lessons from this text. The first word is this. It's directly from the text. It's the word grieved. Genesis 6. The Lord saw that the wickedness of men was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. Now, it's easy for people to hear stories of great judgment by God like this and be really bothered. This text reaffirms you are bothered and saddened as is God in whose image you are created. God is bothered, deeply grieved, utterly heartbroken to his very core. The Hebrew word translated grieved is a really strong one. It means vexed, completely to the core, distraught. In fact, this word is used elsewhere in Isaiah 54, 6 to refer to how a woman feels when abandoned and rejected by her husband. And unfortunately, some of you have experienced that feeling. But imagine what that feeling must have felt like in a day when women had essentially no rights, no good options for work. So not only were they rejected in love, they were without hope of economic self-sufficiency, destined to be destitute, utterly heartbroken, deserted, hopeless, a hollow, sick feeling. This, as we highlighted last week, is how God feels about our sin especially when we have rejected his ways over and over and over and over again. As you have noticed in your Bible readings this last week, uh, it takes a lot for God to lose hope. I was sitting at breakfast this last week planning our next topic for the men's breakfast. And by the way, we have a fantastic next men's breakfast coming up. We have a leader who has trained leaders all over the world speaking to us about leadership. It's on February 8th here in the lobby at 8 a.m. Joe Simonet's going to be the speaker. His entire job is training and coaching leaders in Fortune 500 companies for many, many years and leading executives from all over the world with whom he does business. And he's really, really good at it. I mean, he'll be talking about how regardless of who you are, or what you do in life, God has placed you in positions where you learning to be a really good leader is going to be what brings good to your life, good to other people's lives, and enables you to fulfill the calling of God on your life. I mean, if you've ever been in one of Joe's training, he makes it simple, clear, and practical. So I want to encourage you to start inviting your friends from work and your neighbors to join us for the great breakfast and talking about growing 
as leaders. You can RSVP online at the Facebook event that's posted on our, web, on our Facebook page. You can email, email me to RSVP as well. Joe and I were also talking this last week about our Bible readings, and he, he made a really interesting observation. He says, when you read the stories of the patriarchs, which is what we read this last week, it's like a soap opera that would have to be at least R, if not X-rated, and probably couldn't be shown on TV. Anybody else have that reaction this last week reading? And yet God is so patient and loving that when we have faith in Him, no matter how messed up we are, He leads us, He blesses us, and He makes us a blessing. That's what you could have caught this last week from your readings. So I want you to think about that for a second. What does it take for God, who is that patient with the patriarchs, to get to the point of flood-level hopelessness? Ever think about that? That says a lot, doesn't it? See, that's also a great example why you can't interpret the Bible without understanding the context of the whole Bible either. The text says, The Lord saw that every intention of the thoughts of the people's hearts was only evil continually. So let's break that down. Sin is ultimately a hard issue. That word intention is a term used to elsewhere in the Bible describe how a potter shapes clay. And the purposeful intent is saying the purposeful intent of people's heart, what they are shaping their lives to be, is only, that's a pretty complete word, isn't it? Only, only continually evil. God saw that evil was uncontrollably spreading and he needed to stop it. So God floods the earth and kills all living things. Now, some people say that doesn't sound like a loving God. Doesn't it? Honestly, doesn't it? I mean, if we have a group of people today whose we know the intent of their heart is evil all the time, don't we seek to aggressively kill them or imprison them? ISIS, for example. Is verse, in verses 11 through 13, we actually see a word play that clarifies this further. The word translated corruption is this Hebrew word that literally translated means destroyers. And then you see a couple verses later where God's action to stop it is translated saying, I will destroy. In other words, what that's saying is God destroys the destroyers. But again, for many Americans, God actively demonstrating his wrath to stop evil is something we think shouldn't happen if God is loving. There's a guy named Miroslav Volf. He uh, spoke at the Vineyard National Conference in Columbus a couple of years ago. He's a Christian. He survived the oppression and genocides of Croatia and is now a professor at Yale University. When he hears this argument that God should never judge evil in such a harsh way, this is how he responds. He says, only people who have grown up in the suburbs and never truly experienced any kind of significant injustice would ever think that way. He goes on and says, when you watch your parents have their throats slit and you watch your family and friends murdered, he says the only way that doesn't drive you insane is to know that there is a God who is loving and who will one day bring justice. 
He goes on to talk about how when he came to America, he was so shocked because there are so many Americans who believe that a God of judgment, whoever believes in a God of judgment is automatically also going to be a really harsh person in their own judgment. And, and he, Wolf comes back to that and he says, it's the exact opposite is actually true. He says, because if you follow his line of thinking here, it's, it, because he says, if you believe God is all love and no justice, you will be left living bitter, seething, seeking revenge, taking matters into your own hands because God's not going to do anything about it. But if you believe God is a God of love, who loves justice, and he will one day judge evil, you find yourself, he says, actually able to lay down your sword and trust him to execute perfect justice. And he says, further, the bitterness and hatred that you carry can melt away because you know God's love and goodness and therefore you know He is truly just and you don't have to carry that. See, so many Americans have illogical, lopsided views of God, love, and justice. We see it in our culture where often the loudest voices saying God is only love and never judges are also sometimes the loudest, most intolerant voices crusading angrily against injustice in our culture. See, we want only love when it comes to us, but we want justice for everybody else when they sin. See, that lopsided, warped logic is something that trips us up often when we read Bible stories like this. We love to deny our own sin, deny that each and every one of us deserves judgment. What you see in the Bible and you read in the Bible is similar to what we talked about last week. God is working this complicated kind of balancing act, trying to restrain evil. His default mode that he wants is to show extravagant love beyond anything we could ever imagine to try to melt our hearts and draw us to repentance. And then other times, it becomes necessary to restrain evil by actively judging it and forcefully putting an end to it so it doesn't take a whole lot more people down with it. Even further, when you read the Bible stories and you understand that so many of these stories you read that are like a, a paragraph or a chapter or whatever, that these summaries are, they're just summaries of, of, of maybe years, sometimes generations take place between a couple different chapters that you've read between the last story and this story. So if you understand that's the time frame happening in those texts when you're reading them, you actually begin to discover that God is far more patient and merciful than we would ever be if we were Him. And God is also wise enough and knows when to actively judge and, and in hopes that the pain will help people hit bottom and return to following Him, kind of like an addict hitting bottom. God, being all-knowing, ever-present, being the creator of all of us, knows each and every one of us perfectly and perfectly finds that balance. So let's move on to the second word that helps us understand this story. The word is favor. Uh, verse 8, But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So favor is another way of saying grace. And why did Noah find favor 
and grace? The text says the heart of all of humanity was continually inclined toward evil. Was it that Noah was somehow this lone saint in the middle of a bunch of devils? I mean, after all, the text says Noah was found to be righteous, right? Hebrews 11 comments on this, telling us the Jewish, it's written to Jews, so it's commenting on the Jewish understanding of this story, which actually lines up with the words of the meaning of this text that we just read. But let's read Hebrews. It says, And without faith it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events yet unseen, in reverent fear, responded to God's word and constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became, here's, the, here's where it says, an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. See, Noah is declared righteous not because of his deeds, but because of his faith. Just like the New Testament. The story shows that the Old Testament teaches from the very beginning that we cannot save ourselves by our deeds. All of us have hearts and desires that are inclined to evil and to sin. We've all not trusted God. We've rejected God. We've questioned our Creator, whether He's really good, really wise, really strong, especially when we're going through difficult and disappointing stuff. We defame His character, questioning Him. We're all desperately sinful, even if we look good on the outside. See, some Christians dismiss and or misunderstand the Old Testament because they paint it under the brush of the Old Testament was all about law. So they say Jesus came and fulfilled the law and did away with all that stuff. And so we don't have to pay that much attention to the Old Testament. And some people say we don't have to pay attention to it at all, the law and that. That's actually a fundamental mischaracterization and a common one about the Old Testament. Righteousness. Right standing with God has always been, from the very beginning, about faith. Noah's story shows us that. See, the question has always been, do we respond to God's word with faith? Do we recognize our desperation and therefore our need for God because we aren't able to save ourselves? God didn't save Noah and call Noah righteous because of his character and his goodness. He saved Noah and gave him right standing with God because Noah accepted God's offer of salvation. He trusted God's word to him. As you're reading your chronological Bible in the, in the coming weeks, you're going to actually run across this. You're going to notice as you, that this kind of response to faith, a, a response of faith is actually even built into the sacrifices of the law. Now, as you're reading Leviticus and Deuteronomy, you may do caffeine up before you do that, otherwise you might miss it, but, but you'll see it if you really look at it close. Noah was as evil as the rest of the people on earth. The difference was when God offered salvation, Noah responded with all-in faith. In fact, all God has ever required of any of us is an unqualified, unconditional yes to following him. See, the kind of response God is wanting is a little bit like a friend of mine years ago in Tulsa. He was driving down the freeway 70 miles an hour, fell asleep, went across the median, head on to the semi. 
Most of the bones in his body were broken. He woke up in the ER to them asking them permission, him permission to treat him and do surgery. And he couldn't sit up. He couldn't move. He couldn't even talk. All he could do was blink yes. He just had to go along with it. An unqualified yes. See, that's what God is asking of us. An unqualified yes that trusts and says, we trust you, God, as the great physician to treat us, to heal us, to lead us. Leaves the question for all of us, are you all in? See, Noah was all in. Even though he looked ridiculous building this ark in the middle of the desert for decades while everyone around him mocked him with probably jokes saying, how many camels does it take to move that to the water? He still trusted God. And he did what God said. What's your posture with God? Is it all in? Or is it holding back parts of your life? Certainly we don't understand from that initial yes all the ways God is going to ask us to be obedient and change across the course of our life. But is your yes unqualified? Or does your yes only cover most things, but maybe not your finances or maybe not your entertainment or maybe not something else in your life? See, Noah builds the ark and one day God says to him, I'm going to send the animals and get them all on the ark. And then God shuts them in and it begins to rain and everything, every man, every woman and child, everything is outside the ark is killed. Now we tend to get up in arms about with outrage about this bringing death, especially because there's children involved, right? Our culture is, I think, so interesting in how we are selectively outraged. Uh, I don't know about you. I think this about myself. I think this about our culture. We are completely, complexly illogical people when it comes to our views of God, love, reality, life, and death. See, death is seen as a bad thing by almost everyone. But in biblical theology, death is seen as a necessary gift to us in a broken world. To not have death, think about it, would be hell on earth. For us to be forever stuck in evil and suffering of sin with no hope of things getting better in this life. I mean, in fact, right before the Noah story, the text actually says this. It says, Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh and his days shall be 120 years. So in your reading prior to this Genesis 6 passage, you were reading about 900-year-old people. But the implication of this text is that God limits our life on this earth, and that is a good, merciful thing. See, Scripture urges us to see life and reality through the lens of eternity. And all throughout Jewish and Christian theology, there's always been this idea of the age of accountability, meaning that children up to a certain point are saved without a personal decision and will be in heaven. So when the innocent are caught up in the destruction of judgment, they simply pass from this life to eternal life in heaven sooner. And honestly, that sounds like a pretty good trade for them. So I don't know about you, but there are, there are times in life where dying is a hopeful thought. I'm not suicidal. Don't go there. It's like the Apostle Paul in Philippians 1 says. He says, for me to live is Christ, meaning I feel like God has more purpose for me and I'm excited to live that and I want to I wanna live out that purpose to the full in this life but, and to die, well, 
that's simply purely gain. It's better for me. See, this life is a, is a blip compared to eternity. And sometimes the most merciful, loving thing God can do to save as many people on earth as possible is death. And I don't know about you again, but personally, I'm glad 120 years is about the max limit. I don't know if I'd want to live longer than that. That's a merciful gift from God. The story goes on about 150 days floating on the waves. Eventually the water recedes. Things dry out. Russell Crowe and Emma Watson and about a bunch of B-list actors walk out and along with Noah's wife, Joan of Ark. That's supposed to be a joke. It's a bad joke. Hey, you're going to get bad jokes. They all emerge from the Ark, Genesis 8 and 9. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And, and, and when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While this earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And then chapter 9, verse 1, God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Skipping down to verse 12. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I made between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in a cloud. He's talking about a rainbow. And it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Verse 15, I will remember my covenant and the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. The third word is actually a phrase. It's fresh start. I think God affirms two things in this text about a fresh start. The first is that God cares about the whole of creation. The covenant is between God and all of creation. Romans 8, I think, captures this thought really well as Paul wrestles with this internal heart struggle with sin and what's wrong in the world and living in the reality of a broken world. He writes, For I consider that the suffering of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So again, he's reaffirming, living with this eternal perspective. And he goes on and says, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. So who subjected it? Humanity, because of our sin. And then he goes on and says, In hope I had, I, I, that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage, to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So God's ultimate plan is to restore humanity and all of creation back to the original good that he intended it to be, the way it's supposed to work again. And all creation, it says, groans for that day. Think about the reality as we know it in our world. Isn't that a great way to describe what we feel and know is wrong with the world and what we long for to be right and different? And isn't God good to warn us and prepare us for what is wrong in our world and give us a hope of what God is working toward? According to Psalm 19 and many other psalms, the the purpose of creation is to declare the glory of God of God. And here's the cool thing about this. The Christian worldview gives us a vision for creation that far surpasses any other vision for the world. 
In caring for the earth, we glorify the one who created it. We aren't to trash it, nor does it teach that creation is unimportant and fleshly fleshly things should be shunned like some other religions teach. Rather, Christianity and the Bible teach that creation is an expression of God and God's goodness. And creation is eagerly longing to be free of its corruption of sin so that it can fully reflect the glory of God and God's goodness in full measure. The second thing that this teaches us is the immeasurable value of human life. Part of the text we skipped earlier says this, And whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. The reason? For God made man in his own image. We alluded to that a couple weeks ago, but it says it explicitly here. The value of something is shown by the price that is paid for it. Human life is so valuable that God says, if you take it, the price is your life. Now, I don't want to get into the whole discussion of capital punishment. That's a whole lot bigger discussion. I just want, to, I just want us to look at this from this perspective today. What I want you to see is that God values life so much that a violation of life requires the ultimate sacrifice. We could put it this way. God is pro-life in every way. And pro-life doesn't just refer to abortion. Every human being without exception bears the image of God and has ultimate value in creation. If we believe that every human being is created in the image of God and has dignity, then that applies to every human alive. It doesn't mean we necessarily will agree on uh, how we should provide health care and what the government should do in guaranteeing that, but it does mean that sick people matter. It doesn't mean we will agree on what's best in affirmative action or raising the oppressed out of their oppression, we, but we will know that black lives, brown lives, yellow lives, all lives, rich and poor lives, educated and not educated lives, they all matter equally. It's not going to dictate necessarily our immigration policy, but when we run into an immigrant, we will treat them like first-class citizens of earth. A human just like you and I, made in the image of God, who loves God and has good plan, and God has good plans for their lives. And we want to be a part of instilling that. See, every human being in the image of God means we protect innocent life at every possible turn. Now, the Bible does have lots and lots of passages to talk about how God sees humans as humans even before they are conceived in the womb. Biblically, personhood begins even before conception in, in the way the Bible teaches about it. If you trust the Bible and believe the Bible as God's Word, then it is crystal clear that abortion is wrong because that baby is already conceived already created in the image of God. Now, I understand that you can certainly disagree with the Bible and trusting the Bible, but please understand, the Christian view, the biblical view of abortion, uh, treats it as wrong because of an extremely high value on humanity. Not because we argue against choice or want to be oppressive to those who think differently. 
This is where our lesson actually from last week also applies this week. We noted last week that the very, in the very beginning of creation, even before sin came in, God created freedom of choice. From that, we also understood you cannot have love without freedom of choice. Now, you can have freedom of choice that's not loving, but you cannot have love without freedom of choice. So biblically, freedom of choice, as we noted, is grounded in God's love. What that's saying to us as followers of Jesus is that love is to guide our freedom of choice. Love is the constraining, directing force on our freedom of choice. Freedom of choice is not something that is elevated above love, even though our culture oftentimes elevates it as a right and a value even above love. So I know this is hard, especially for a male to say, but let me, let me just go at it this way. I'll, I'll, I'll quote a bunch of female people talking about this. That was a funny way of saying that, wasn't it? Female people. Thank you. I'm so glad we have female people. Some famous female personalities have said it's your body. Who else's opinion matters? In a recent acceptance speech for an acting award, Michelle Williams said, I, I wouldn't have been able to do this without employing a woman's right to choose. Her argument is choice allowed me to do what I wanted to do with my life. Ashley Bratcher, the star of Unplanned, actually responded to that comment by her and says, society makes us believe that you can't have a baby and have a successful career or go to school. And that's exactly the opposite of female empowerment. Lila Rose, founder of Live Action, tweeted a response to William's statement also saying, no trophy is worth more than a child's life. Sacrificing our children to pursue our dreams is the total antithesis of women's empowerment. And later she also added this. She says, babies do not keep us from our dreams. Babies make us better, more loving, more giving. They are the source and inspiration for our best dreams. According to the best university and government studies and research out there, 95 to 98.5% of abortions in America are choice over love. They are purely about personal needs, have nothing to do with any real threat to the mother's life or anything about physical or emotional trauma occurring in that. We say, my rights, my body, my choice. But that baby is part of your body. And the bigger question that would, is what, what would love do? And we think about that. What does a civil society do in its treatment of those who are innocent, even those who make life more difficult or might remind us of painful events? It doesn't kill them. Or do we trust what we read in our scripture reading this past week? Though not an unwanted pregnancy or rape, we read about Joseph being physically abused and sold into slavery by his brothers. And decades later, his brothers all of a sudden unknowingly are standing before him. And Joseph had the power to kill them and in many people's eyes just cause to kill them. They reminded him of his pain. They had treated him in the most despicable way. And Joseph doesn't kill him. The story of Joseph is that even... Those things in life that are jarring, that are difficult, that are painful, that are unjust, God redeems, God changes. And often out of those most horrible experiences and painful experiences come God's greatest gifts to us. See, we sin because we believe 
what we're doing will make life better. That, whatever the sin is, that's, that's what we're believing. We do this because we think it'll make life better. And maybe because we do it, maybe we do have more money. Maybe we do have a few more promotions in our career than we might have gotten otherwise. But, but, but is life really better? Is it really better? We must ask ourselves, is our freedom of choice about comfort? Or is our freedom of choice about the love and glory of God? Love and honoring the image of God in others is the only guide that can make our choices and actions around abortion, marriage, those who are suffering, injustice, the elderly, immigration, or any other choice you make healthy and good. When love does not guide our choice, all that results is our sin is compounding upon sin. See, Mother Teresa said to Bill Clinton in the 1994 prayer breakfast, she said, don't kill unwanted children. Send them to me. Honestly, I think that's the posture God wants every Christian to have. I, I don't know how we live that out fully, I know that it means that we care for and love those who have had abortions because God's mercy is so tremendously great. He wants to restore and wash anything away from guilt or feelings regarding that. I do know this. It starts by committing time and money to caring for our children and our youth well here in our church and in our community. That That's one way. It probably means that our church and individuals and families in us engage the foster system. I, I know it means continuing to tutor at our elementary school where a number of the children we tutor come from homes where they don't have support and they don't always feel wanted and we get a chance to make them feel wanted. It means continuing our end poverty plus and caring for teen moms and, and supporting people coming out of human trafficking and providing food and job assistance through warm to people who are in, in need. It means us continuing to give generously to Quest so that people can be helped through times of difficulty and we can provide scholarships for people who want to heal and grow. And I, and I know it means that we probably also do this. We got an opportunity in an email this last week and if you're interested, uh, the school that is leasing our facility is asking for people to come and be trained and, and background checked and, and become mentors to teenagers here. And we've got a great opportunity here. If you want to know about that, talk to Jeremy. He can help you with that. I, I know it means we need to figure out how to mercifully and meaningfully personally love those who des- whose desires are warped and they find themselves in alternative sexualities. So that, and, and we need to do that in a way that is compassionate and personal and kind and affirming of the people in the image of God. See, this fresh start God gives starts by valuing the image of God no matter how corrupted that image is in any one of us. And all of us have some corruption in that image of God in us. The final word, or it was actually a phrase that I think we gleaned something from this text, is hope in the midst of failure. This fresh start covenant of God makes with humanity is made. God's pleased that Noah accepts it by faith. And then God says this. He says, The Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. This is not what you'd expect God to say, is it? You'd expect him to say, Now that I've destroyed all all the evildoers, things are going to be better this time around. But notice, even after the flood, God still knows the intention of humanity's heart is evil from our youth. 
He knows sin and evil is still going to be prominent, even dominant at times. You see it as quickly as the end of Noah's story. You find him drunk and running around naked and all sorts of sin abounding, even just at the end of the chapter 9 in Genesis. See, God is communicating that hope in the face of the continued sin is going to be different this time around. In the story, you see God saying uh, about a rainbow as the sign of the promise of the covenant. Uh, That word that actually is used there to describe the bow is actually the same word used for a battle bow or or a bow used in war. What the text is actually symbolizing there is that God has laid down His war bow. In fact, His war bow symbolized in the rainbow is actually now pointing back to heaven, meaning God is going to take into Himself the arrows of His own wrath over sin. The text is actually foreshadowing in the imagery Jesus coming. Like Noah, through obedience, Jesus provides an ark of salvation. Unlike Noah, who was, who was obedient and saved but still failed, the hope of Jesus is sure because Jesus is obedient to the end, fulfilling the price to pay for sin perfectly and fully. Like Noah, we will emerge from the storms of judgment as new creatures with a fresh start. Unlike Noah, God, through Jesus, has won the battle so we can receive the Holy Spirit And God can progressively, by the power of His Holy Spirit, begin to change the inclination of our hearts so that it's not always towards evil. The question is, have you entered the ark of Jesus' love for you? Or are you still trying to be good enough on yourself? 2 Peter 3 uses the story of Noah to warn us to not delay, inviting us to be all in with God. It says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise. Now the promise being talked about there is referring to Jesus both finishing the transformation of His followers to be free of sin, but also it is the promise of bringing judgment and putting away all sin in the earth permanently, restoring everything back to the way it was originally intended to be without sin. It says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are, that are done on it will be exposed. So what this is saying to us is don't use the time God intends to give you space and opportunity to come to faith in Him, to know Him, to receive His forgiveness, receive His salvation. Don't, 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 Abuse that time He's given you and treat it as just mercy that's unending that you can do whatever you want and not worry about it. Love without judgment is not love. Jesus is coming back to set all things right, either at the time of our deaths or at the time when Jesus comes for a second time. But don't fill yourself uh, every night with the idea of going to sleep that, that you can just use God's mercy that he's not going to judge that you can just you got time there's an urgency so I want you to take a moment right now and I'm just going to give you a moment of space of silence here and just ask you what what is the Holy Spirit saying to you today ask the Holy Spirit where are you wanting me to change or respond with a step of faith today
Close your eyes and just give the Holy Spirit a second to talk with you. God, thank you that it's not up to me to prove that I'm good enough. It's not up to any of us. But you're so generous, you're so kind, you're so patient. But Lord, you still call us to love, to love you into a goodness and a freedom that you want to bring to each and every one of us for eternity. So Holy Spirit, would you just come right now And would you help us experience your inviting love coming to us? Make clear the word you're speaking to each and every one of us so that we can take a step of faith and we, like Noah, can be saved, be in right standing, find goodness in our life, even in the most difficult stuff that we're facing now. Lord, would you show us how you're coming to us and inviting us to you, to follow you? and experience you with us in your salvation. Lord, as we turn our hearts in worship, would you, would you just come by your Spirit and continue to touch us, continue to be in our thoughts and our hearts, and would you receive our praise, and would you be glorified by our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand and worship? Thank you for listening to this week's sermon audio. If you're loving Quest Podcast, let us know on Facebook or Twitter by using the hashtag GoToQuest. For more information on Quest, who we are, and what God is doing here, or if you would like to help support Quest financially, please visit us at GoToQuest.org. That's G-O-T-O-Quest.org. Thanks for listening.